Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager for Metagenics. On the line today with me from California to discuss the role of microbiome and the immune dysfunction is Moises Velasquez-Manoff. Moises is a science writer with a particular interest in the microbiome. His work has been published in science journals such as Nature, as well as in the popular press such as New York Times and Scientific America. As a sufferer of both allergies and an autoimmune condition, Moises has explored the etiology of immune dysfunction, which is on the increase in the Western world. His investigations include experimenting himself with parasites in an attempt to modulate his immune system. As a result of his research, Moises has published the book Epidemic of Absence, A New Understanding of Allergies and Autoimmunity. Welcome, Moises. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for joining me. Uh, So I've uh, reached out today because I feel like you're in a great position to help us guide us through this um, ever, ever growing microbiome science. I think looking at PubMed, there's almost a almost equates to a paper an hour being published on um, PubMed. So it's very, very difficult to get a, your head around it. And um, you've certainly been in this space both professionally and almost personally as well um, with your allergies and so forth. So I felt you're being also a science writer. You've got a, an objective um, view on things. Even your book isn't sort of filled with audacious claims about cures and solutions. It's more of a uh, you know food for thought in a sense. And also, because you do write in also like the popular press, you've got a great way of um, translating a lot of this um, jargon and, and teasing out some of the, the key areas. So before we go into some of the detail, I thought perhaps you can just share a bit of um, you know background on yourself and how you got into the microbiome and your interest in allergies and autoimmunity. Sure, yeah. I, well, so I've been a lifelong asthmatic. Um, it's gotten, it was really bad when I was young, but it's gotten sort of better and manageable as I got older. But uh, and then I, I uh, have had food allergies to peanuts and sesame my whole life. I was sort of ahead on that trend um, since I'm not – kids these days often have peanut allergies, but I, had a, I was born back in the 70s. Um, and then I developed around age 11 an autoimmune disorder called alopecia areata, which is basically your immune system turns on your hair follicles. And for most people, it just it creates like a bald spot here and there and then goes away. But for me – it progressed to complete loss of hair in my whole body since about um, age, I guess, 13 or something. Uh, and that's how I've been. So in any case, my whole life, I've been wondering what, I mean, in the back of my mind early in life, but later on more explicitly as I became a journalist and science writer, uh, why me and what, why are these diseases, where do they come from? Because these are not sort of diseases that you think of like in the classic sense, like infections where you're being attacked by some foreign organism. Um, these are diseases in which your own immune system turns on you, but they're very curious. So as a science writer, I started looking into it, and I came across a sort of trail of crumbs that led to what's known as the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis. I mean, I should back up and say that there are other explanations. I just didn't feel like they held much water. The other explanations being, you know, there's toxic chemicals or yeah. – uh, um, and sure, I'm sure that those are not uh, – good for us. There's no question in my mind, all the, the various endocrine disruptors we're exposed to. But do they explain these trends? Um, it didn't seem to me that they did. And the one sort of emerging hypothesis that did explain these trends that had good data to support the hypothesis was the hygiene hypothesis, uh, which is a horrible name. And there's, we should probably change it to 
either the old friends hypothesis, the idea being that there are organisms that your immune system needs to, uh, these are old friends organisms in quotes, um, needs to, to uh, develop properly, needs to be educated by, then when those organisms go missing, you're, you sort of lose your immune education. Another version could be the, uh, the microbial deprivation hypothesis, which is that we're just simply not exposed to a whole bunch of organisms that our body expects, and so on. The, 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 the distorted microbiome, I mean, there's like numerous iterations, but yes. the basic idea is that, uh, that our body expects, our immune system expects contact with a suite of organisms that have co-evolved with us. And they've just always been around in the environment. Some of them live in us, some of them might just pass through. Some of them we might consider to be infectious organisms like, like parasites or helmets, like intestinal worms. But the fact of the matter is that they've probably always been there since time immemorial, and we've just removed them in the last century and a half about. Um, and that's the exact time frame in which we've seen these diseases rise um, and become sort of, uh, well, you, a lot of people call them epidemics, asthma epidemic, uh, the allergy epidemic, the autoimmune epidemic. Great, yes. And uh, you, you gave a TEDx talk uh, recently, and, and one thing that really struck me was this um, this little sort of study that, well, it's not, no longer little, but uh, an area in um, or Russia and Finland where there seems to be sort of fleshing out evidence for this um, hygiene hypothesis. Can you describe what's happened there and, and what's what's come of the research from um, Karelia? Yeah, so there's a place called Karelia. It, it spans the border between Russia and Finland. It was an old province that used to belong to Finland, and since World War II, half of it has ended up has been in Russia. So a lot of the people who live in on the Russian side are still ethnic, well, Karelians, which is they they're, they're Finns. I mean, it's a sort of a mixture of people. But the the point is that um, that they they can look at the sort of gene variants that predispose to autoimmune disease in particular, and also just to to allergic disease, but mostly autoimmune disease. And so in Finland, it's been really worrisome in the last fifty or sixty years. The uh, prevalence of celiac disease and type one diabetes have gone up tremendously. It's the number one country for type one diabetes. Now, that's autoimmune diabetes that usually is childhood onset, um, which means that you, you have to take insulin for pretty much your whole life to survive. Uh, and so, at that border, you cross the border, and these autoimmune diseases are like between one fifth and one sixth as prevalent. So it's a pretty steep gradient. Um, and so, when they started looking into this in the late nineties and early early aughts. What they discovered was that that the kids on the Russian side had a lot more oral fecal infections, which is like hepatitis A, um, various herpes uh, infections, uh, Helicobacter pylori is another important one. That's a that's a, a bacterium that that lives in your stomach, and that by the way we all used to have, and now has declined in the, in the developed world pretty dramatically. Uh, but so. What they saw was evidence of a lot of sort of, of, of oral fecal transmission, which they're not really sure yet if it's the actual infection, like the hepatitis A virus or, or Helicobacter pylori. There is a strong argument that Helicobacter pylori could actually prevent allergies, or if it's everything else that comes along with those infections in that environment. Because um, as this, the research has progressed, they've sh shown that the kids on the Russian side sort of have a different collection of microbes, intestinal microbes, starting very early in life. And what they think is that diff that different collection actually educates their immune system uh, so that it, it goes down a different trajectory of development, um, one that is less prone to developing these diseases. So of course, an autoimmune disease, when your body, when your immune system turns on, on some organ in your, in your own body, turns on the cell 
And allergic disease is when your immune system overreacts to proteins in the environment, like tree pollens or cat dander. And that immune system on the Russian side, which has been educated this way by these explosions, is much less prone to the, these mistakes. Great. And just to back up, it was thought that the, this sort of um, socioeconomic gradient was created um, between the Finland side and the Russian side after the war and the um, you know, communism and so forth on the Russian side. And it's everything they've looked at seems to be equal in terms of yeah genetics and diet and even chemical exposure. Um, and it, they, they sort of, that's the compelling evidence because of the uh, I suppose development of Finland with the the hygiene and the antibiotics that's has created this sort of microbiome differential between the two. Is that correct? That's right. Um, so I mean, Finland is a modern Scandinavian country. It's one of the richest countries in the world per capita in terms of per capita income. Uh, it's it's everything you can imagine that, uh, in a modern Scandinavian country. Whereas on the Russian side, it's more like a developing country. Um, People still drink untreated water. That sometimes it comes from wells. Sometimes it comes directly from. There's a huge lake there. It comes directly from the lake. Uh, so that water, of course, can be contaminated with fecal material. But it can also just has all the microorganisms that live in natural lake water or, or natural well water. Uh, there's probably people live in more crowded conditions. They're looking at dietary differences. They don't seem to eat different amounts of of wheat, which is important for celiac mm-hmm. disease, right? In fact, they eat a little bit more wheats on the Russian side, if anything, it seems like. Uh, but there might there may be change differences in diet um, related to how much sort of prepackaged food they eat on the Russian side because they're just much poorer. So they're not sort of in this world where they can buy, go and buy Twinkies or what you know whatever the equivalent is over there, um, or whatever the equivalent is in Australia. Twinkies are you know like <laughs> desserts. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all pretty familiar with it. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure. Um, so there's not that you don't live in that sort of modern 20th century world where there's all this prepackaged, highly refined stuff. It, you, you you may uh, make more of yourself or or you be more in that. In fact, when you talk to the Finnish scientists, they say that it's like Finland before World War II over in Russia. Yeah. So it's like it stopped in time and never sort of advanced into the 20th century. Just stopped there. And if you look actually at the over time, the prevalence rates of allergic and, and autoimmune diseases. Um, the levels in Russia are right where Finland was back in around 1950, 1940, which is pretty cool. So it's like Finland, the, the prevalence levels kept going up in Finland, but they stayed the same in Russia. Yeah, it's um, very intriguing. It's been great to read the research coming out of there. Um, some of the research they have looked at is the, the obviously the microbiome. And I think that the skin on the, the Russian side um, is more diverse. And, and also is it Mikhail Nip, I think, um, a leading researcher there's looked at the the um, fecal microbiome and, and found a few differences, um, which leads me on to the, my next sort of area of discussion is about um, the microbiome. And you've certainly um, published um, bits and pieces on this. And um, one of the areas we've trying to been elucid- trying to elucidate, I suppose, is the um, composition of the microbiome. And certainly from like the Human Microbiome Project and so forth, it seems like there's a lot of diversity even amongst healthier people. Um, but amongst all that, there are maybe some some common threads that um, may be of importance. And one of your articles uh, in Nature, he discussed these uh, Clostridia clusters that may confer some benefit. So would you better explain, perhaps in some more layman's terms, what that means and how that may benefit uh, the host? Yeah, there are these uh, these bacteria that keep showing up. They're 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 not usually 
super numerous, but they keep showing up as important. Uh, like when you compare, for example, someone who has Crohn's disease and someone who's healthy, or or um, someone who has ulcerative colitis. These are these are inflammatory conditions of the intestine, uh, where it seems like those bacteria drop. Um, they they in the disease state. So of course, there's always a question. Well, well, maybe that's a consequence, not a cause. But the animal models actually suggest that those bacteria are important for, like in a mouse, when you have those bacteria in there or you take them out. Putting them in, what they do is they induce the parts of your immune system that actually help your immune system control itself. And uh, they're called regulatory T cells. I mean, there's a whole sort of repertoire of regulatory cells that your, your immune system has. But what's important about these cells is they're exactly the cells that hold back other cells and prevent them from overreacting, from like reacting to allergens or reacting to bacteria in the case of, of inflammatory bowel disease. So like there's this aspect, we don't usually think of disease this way. We think of disease as being a result of being attacked by an organism. But there's an aspect of these autoimmune diseases um, where you're, you're, I mean, obviously, your immune system is just simply overreacting. And the cure needs to be uh, to get your immune system back under control. And so these bacteria, these clostridial clusters, seem to be experts at doing, at sort of training your immune system to control itself. If we believe the animal studies, right? Um, yeah. And so, what's important about them? There's several things that's important about that are that are that's important about them. Um, they they seem to have an important relationship with the barrier, the mucus barrier of the gut. So, the thicker generally your mucus barrier is, it seems like that's a healthier state to be in than to have a thin mucus barrier. Um, a thin mucus barrier means that that microbes can get a little bit too close for comfort, maybe, and start inflaming you perhaps um but the other the other thing is that they that stuff can start leaking through that maybe shouldn't be leaking through i mean i you know a lot of people talk about leaky gut i'm not really sure uh i think it gets a lot more talk these days especially in sort of pseudo popular health press uh yeah. that that and it's not really clear what anyone means because clearly your gut needs to be leaky sometimes otherwise you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't absorb the nutrients that you needed to absorb um but yes, your gut get too leaky. If bacteria are leaking through. That's probably not a good thing, right? Because then they hit the other side, and then your body treats it like an infection, and then you're you're inflamed. Um, so, so these clostridial clusters they're important for the gut barrier health. They're important for the actual barrier of your gut, the mucus barrier. Uh, they're important for inducing the kinds of cells that prevent autoimmune and allergic disease. And lo and behold, they also seem to be um, important in fermenting soluble fiber uh so so they seem to specialize they seem to be fiber fermenters they're specialized in 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 fermenting like uh you know there there's a whole bunch of different kinds of soluble fiber but these are sugars that you can't sure. digest um that that pass through to your colon and that your microbes digest for you and they're they're uh sugars that have largely gone missing in the modern western diet not entirely but they're probably they've declined a lot simply because we eat we eat uh, highly refined sugary fatty food these days that without much fiber in it yeah so with these um these uh, uh cells that uh, sorry the bacteria that make the the say the short chain fatty acids like this that they ferment the the sugars uh, um in your article you talk about and i've seen elsewhere that 
a host of bacteria can do this, but some seem to do it better than others or they actually can burrow deeper into the mucus to, to hand off the, the short-chain fatty acids, particularly the, the butyrate. Are there sort of heroes amongst those or I think you may refer to them as peacekeepers or um, in the literature they call them like keystone species? Have yeah. you explored that? I like that idea. I don't know. So the, the question is a good one about the you know, what's so special about these bacteria since so many different kinds of bacteria seem to be able to do exactly that job. And I think the answer to that is at this point, um, at this point, it's probably not a good idea to get too attached to any particular species because as yeah. the research develops, we're probably going to see that what, probably the jobs are more important. And we're going to see that um, what what ferments it in, in one person, what the bug that ferments uh, fiber in one person is not going to be the same bug that ferments it in another person. And the important part is that it ferments it in a certain way. Now, I mean, so to the second part of your question about are they handing it off in some special way, um, I don't think we know that yet. I mean, not that I'm aware. And I think that also mm -hmm. these microbes are probably interacting with your immune systems in ways that we can't yet measure. So it's not just the butyrate that they're producing. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, like there's, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Sarkis Mansmanian. Uh, he's at Caltech. So he, he is, yes. he's works on, um, uh, one of these Bacteroides species, Bacteroides fragilis. And so he's like identified what he calls, I think it's a symbiosis factor, a symbiont factor. I can't remember exactly. That's just the lipopolysaccharide of that particular microbe that he says has these special effects that he claims, you know, according to his research. But the point is that that uh, not all lipopolysaccharides might be the same. So lipopolysaccharide is the outer part, it's part of the outer uh, membrane of, of gram-negative bacteria. Um, they might not all be the same, even though we treat them as all the same. Yeah. Right? Um, so some might be more powerful, some might be, uh, um, I don't know, more beneficial in different, different situations. Like we, we talked about the Karelian situation. Uh, those kids on the, on the Russian side, they seem to have a microbe that's more stimulatory early on in life that has a lipopolysaccharide that's more um, that, that's more provocative to their immune system, and that actually ends up training their immune system to be less reactive later, paradoxically. So, like, it's it's very complicated, I guess, is the answer. So, I don't know that we can say yet that um, you know that that there are any keystone that we know what the keystone species are. I guess. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's fantastic because what I'm sort of getting at is often people keen to test their microbiome and and draw conclusions from it, but I'm not convinced yet that we're at that space where we can, um, you know, make firm decisions based upon our microbiome test. Have you looked into this? Have you tested your own? Do you, you know? No, I mean, I, I, for exactly that reason, I haven't because I don't. What does any, any of it mean? No one really knows. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, you know, ask Rob Knight. I'm sure he would say the same thing. Uh, yeah, yes, he does. How do you interpret any of this stuff that's coming out? Like, we just don't know enough yet. Um, maybe if you see like a bloom of C. diff, you could know that that's not a good thing. C. diff is the, 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 the one that causes that horrible, um, Clostridium difficile causes that horrible diarrhea, potentially. But on the other hand, I'm sure some people will have C. diff and they'll be perfectly healthy. I mean, that's just one of the mystery of the microbiomes. It's like some people can harbor what are pathogens for other people and not, not show any problems because, I mean, there could be a host of different reasons, but one reason maybe because of the rest of the way of the, the rest of their microbiome is configured it sort of keeps it in check. It doesn't ever cause any problems. But it could also be that these there are microbes that turn on virulence factors in their genes, right? 
that become virulent only in certain circumstances, and that in those people, uh, there, those circumstances are, are, have not been have not arisen. Yeah, it certainly um, seems to me that context comes into a lot of it, like um, Helicobacter pylori. It's what, when you get it, at what age, and same with the um, even with this LPS. It's all. It's not just um, black and white that LPS is bad. It's yeah, very contextual. So yes, I think probably time will tell with all of this of um, where the where the truth may lie. Um, on that note, one of the other areas, and you mentioned it earlier on, was um, this sort of cause or consequence scenario of the dysbiosis has certainly been established in over 50 pathologies, but um, the question is, is it a cause or is it an effect? Is it an epiphenomenon and so forth? Where do you think, um, you know, to play the devil's advocate in a sense, where do you think it may be overstated or it's too early to tell where we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves or where do you think there is really sort of solid, um, pretty emphatic science behind this sort of dysbiosis, the microbiome causing systemic diseases? Well, the clearest example where it's causing problems is, again, Clostridium difficile. So that's, you usually take antibiotics, or it comes on after antibiotics, and you clear out all your good flora, and then this one bug blooms in the sort of vacated space of your gut, and it causes horrible diarrhea, and you could, you could kill people. It does kill a lot of people every year. Um, Certainly. So, so that's a clear example of that of the dysbiosis being a cause. And dysbiosis, in that case, is a dramatic loss in diversity of your ecosystem, um, and that which allows colonization by this one microbe, or perhaps it was already there and it just blooms. Uh, but for like the other, the other, I mean, so look, the, the, this whole the science is being driven by mouse models. Um, and the mouse model is a germ-free mouse, and they usually take a microbiome from a sick person or, or another sick mouse and transplant it into a mouse that has never seen a microbe in its life. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then they see the disease emerge. And that is proof, in a way, of causation, that the microbes are causing the disease. But that system is so artificial uh, because there's no such thing as an animal that's never seen a microbe <laughs> in, the, in the real world. Uh, those those animals are also by by definition their their immune systems are told, are arrested they have not been developed because we need to have contact with microbes for our immune system to, to develop properly. So I, I feel like the model itself, which has been so powerful to show that microbes can cause disease, rather than microbiomes that dysbiotic microbiomes can cause disease. Um, the shortcoming is that it's just so artificial. I mean, it, you know, so then you have to you have to somehow figure out a way to show it in people who have had tons of, of plenty of contact with microbes of all sorts, um, and and who are in these situations where they're where they're in a diseased state. Um, I don't know. It's rough. It's it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's hard. Um... The, uh, certainly, the Corellia study is teasing out some of the the allergies and autoimmunities, but I'm curious, you know, say autism or you know mood disorders and so forth. If that would, you know, if there's a signal through all that noise there, and it's pretty hard to tease out. So, yeah, certainly we need the work, and the mouse models are a good start, but um, it's certainly not emphatic that um, disposes is the, the sole culprit, perhaps. Well, I mean, you know, in some case, like let's say you give someone antibiotics and they get better. Let, let's say you know, let's say they have Crohn's disease. And, and yes. go on a course of antibiotics and they're better uh, that tells you that the microbes are playing a strong part 
right? In in I mean, you can't stay on antibiotics forever, right? So let and they come off, and then the, the disease comes back. Let's say that's what happens. So that tells you the micro that that the microbiome is playing a strong role in whatever is happening to them. Um, if you could do that kind of proof in other situations as well, that'd be great. I don't know. It's it's you don't want to be giving people antibiotics willy nilly, of course, but sure thing. Well, let's move on to um, how we can potentially manipulate the microbiome. Um, I want to cover sort of three areas, maybe sort of more invasive than others. That is that the helminths, um, fecal microbiota transplantation, then things like probiotics and more diet and lifestyle type things. So first of all, the helminths, this is something that you've um, explored both professionally and, and personally. So perhaps just give us a bit of a, a snapshot of how you see helmets fitting into the microbiome and throughout evolution. And we'll discuss some of the, the, the types of helmets that people may be um, trialing. Yeah, well, helmets are intestinal parasites, worms by another name. Um, they have been, by all, all evidence suggests, they've been with people since very, since forever, uh, probably since before we were human, since the great apes all seem to have very, a whole sort of <laughs> biodiverse cluster of, 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 uh, of parasites at all times. Um, uh, they, they've been with us, and it's, they, they have a trick to, so this is a rather large animal that takes up residence inside another animal, and to do that, they have to sort of fend off your, your fully functioning immune system, and the way they do that is by convincing your immune system that they belong in a way, um, and that, more specifically, that means that they induce those very same cells that prevent allergy or an autoimmune disease, those regulatory cells. So... If you can imagine that they've been there, you know, perhaps for millions of years, um, exerting this pressure on your immune system, and, and it probably was impossible never to have some parasites in, in, in the past, since most animals have them, um, that your immune system may come to depend on that, or at least may incorporate that pressure into part of its normal functioning, so that when you take them away, it sort of it sort of uh, starts, it collapses, it can no longer calibrate properly. And that's, that's one component of the hygiene hypothesis, as the idea that we've lost contact with these large animals that have this rather large influence on, on our immune system. And there's good data suggesting that um, this is the case, namely like when they deworm people who are naturally parasitized, they see this immediate rebound in their allergic response, like immediate. Um, so, that, you know, that's pretty good in, in reverse that we're saying that Possibly, can we put the worms back and see a suppression of this of, of the allergic response or of the immune overreactivity? Um, so, anyways, sorry, go ahead. Were you about to ask something? Oh no, no, um, no. I was just going to say. Well, it seems like yeah, this is you've described it as like an underground movement and. Um, Practitioners, some practitioners, and, and certainly patients online and so forth, are starting to experiment with these um, organisms. There's been a bit of research behind them, so I wanted to, to cover off sort of the three main ones that I can see have been used, whether experimentally or more recently. Well, let me just interject something there. That, yeah, go for it. <laughs> there's a you know there, there, there's some solid science on this. There's no science yet suggesting that it works yes. in people, but the theory, the, the sort of theoretical framework is is solid you know, biology and evolutionary biology or, or evolutionary immunology, perhaps. Um, but what's happened with the underground move, movement that you've referenced is that these people have read this work. They're desperate. A lot of them are desperately ill. And they basically decided to go ahead treating themselves by re-parasitizing themselves um, with, usually without any medical oversight. So they're way ahead of 
beyond the science mm. because there really is at this point no good solid study showing that giving yourself a parasite is going to help with any kind of disease. <laughs> so go ahead. Sorry, I just had to introduce. Oh no, that. yeah, that's right. that's a good um, preface to it all. Um, yes, I know. I certainly understand people are, are, are desperate, and it sounds appealing. And there is some science behind it, but yeah, unfortunately, animal models don't always translate to, to human um, experience. But so the, the three that I see: uh, Trichariosuus, um, Nectar americanus, uh, which is the human hookworm, and uh, if I can pronounce it correctly, Hymenoleptus demucia, yeah, a newer player. So can you just go through each three and? Um, Obviously, we get to the hook where we can maybe describe your experience with um, using that. Yeah, so the, well, the only one that has actually been investigated in any sort of clinical way is the first, Trichurisuis. That's a pig whipworm. It's a whipworm native to pigs. The idea, the scientist who developed that, his, his idea was that the parasite couldn't reach sexual maturity in a human because it's native to pigs. So you would get the benefit, but you wouldn't risk transmitting it to other people. Which actually, in reality, if you if you poop in a toilet, it's pretty difficult to do with any of these parasites <laughs> because they have to like go through this whole cycle of incubation out in like 90 degree weather, and then you have to encounter the larvae. That is n- not with the trichurisuus, but with the hookworm. But with the trichurisuus, they also have to incubate and they have to become infective uh, uh, embryos, basically. So it, this this parasite was developed into an actual drug in quotes, what's just called a probiotic by a German doctor named Detlev Goj. Um, and then it's the early trials seemed to show that it was going to be very useful. But then a large trial, these, this company called Coronado Bioscience has tried to bring it to market. They, uh, the large trial basically showed that it didn't work at all. And so there's a huge controversy in this community of people about why that was the case since the early trials showed it was so effective. And plenty of people used it and report, you know, in, anecdotally reported that it seemed to work and help. Very well. Um, you know, this is all basically hearsay at this point, but uh, apparently the, com- the Carnado Biosciences, Detlev Goj says, Carnado Biosciences changed the formula right before they started testing, which, you know, I don't know. They must have had some kind of quality control in place also to make sure they have viable eggs. But I think the most likely answer is that it just doesn't work or that they recruited, they recruited people who were so sick that it couldn't work on that group. Of, of people, okay. you know, which sometimes yep. are possibly, that, that um, and yet people in the community use it and swear by it. Some people, so hard to say. Uh, hookworm, Nicator americanus, the American murderer. Um, it's uh, it's in fact one a, a bunch of a group. I, I forget what institution they're at. Of Australian scientists is, is working with the Nicator americanus. That's right. Yep. Um, uh, John Croix and. Alex Lucas, I think, was it. That's correct, yeah. So Alex Lucas, you know, if you ask him, he'll say the reason trichur- the pig whipworm failed is because it's not native to humans. So it can't really, it can't really tweak the human immune system the way the, way the Nicator americanus can, which, as I recall, he described to me as exquisitely adapted to the human body. Um, so what they're, what they're looking at uh, in those trials that they're doing there, and they've actually seen some success, some success is just how it changes... Uh, the, the the people who have problems with wheat, like uh, celiac disease, how it changes their response to gluten over time and how it changes the microbiome. Um, and they've seen some sh- shifts in both. And also they've, they've gotten these people who have celiac disease and can't tolerate gluten to the point where they can actually eat, I think, the equivalent of a bowl full of pasta or something. Yeah, 
It's quite incredible. Which is, is really amazing. So then again, so I mean, that, that shows that maybe this has merit after all. Um, now, in the underground, people, I think Decatur Americanus is probably the most widely used organism, actually. And that's the one I experimented with. Um, I went down to Tijuana, Mexico here. The person who, who operates it, or whose co-owner operates it with a Mexican doctor, he goes down to Tijuana to avoid any problems with the FDA. He has his office down there. So I went down there, and so Decatur Americanus, go, the larvae go through your skin. Uh, this is the worm that... that young kids in the developing world are admonished to wear shoes to avoid because it usually goes through your feet. But so I got a patch, I put it on my arm. You feel this itching, which is a kind of famous itch, a hookworm itch. And, uh, and then it takes this sort of odyssey through your body, it goes through, I mean, it's kind of scary when you read about it actually. It goes yeah. through your, <laughs> it goes through your heart. <laughs> um, it comes out your lung and then it pops over your, your your pharynx into your small intestine but it's where it ends up eventually where it latches on and starts sucking blood um, and I did see some positive effects but I also had lots of horrible negative side effects like headaches and, and, and diarrhea and um, they waned with time and then but the benefits so the benefits were basically that I lost my hay fever for about, I don't know, three weeks, a month, something like that. That spring, it was just completely gone. And then suddenly it came back, and then, then it was gone again. And so like the, I found the effects to be variable. And if you go to these communities, these online chat rooms where people talk mm -hmm. about this, uh, that other people observe that too. And their, their approach, their response to that problem is to just give themselves more worms or, or you know. Um, but I personally, uh, I think it was after a year, I terminated my colony – um, I just the side effects were too much for me. The variability didn't make the benefits worth it, and uh, and you know you're you're I don't recommend anyone do this necessarily. You're you're going into uncharted territory where where everyone who's involved, including the people who are giving you the parasites, are telling you these things work. Like there is no you know you go to a doctor, they're gonna they're gonna be more straight up and tell you that is if you go to an MD, they're gonna say. Um, they, we don't know if this works 50% of the time. This works 20%. You know, some, they'll, they'll have some sort of meta-analysis that they can reference, and they'll, they'll be honest with you. Um, but in this world, it's all just enthusiasm. You, you mostly just hear positive anecdotes and miraculous stories, some of which I've written yes. about, and really, really are miraculous. And then you can document that it actually happened, but, you know, they're anecdotes. So we don't know, we don't know the people who felt horrible you don't you don't know how many people got worse you don't know who might have even died even though i doubt that's probably happened but it's possible yeah um so i, I just urge caution and skepticism while venturing into this world and the newest rival in this the underground movement is is the uh the rat tapeworm that you mentioned hymenolepis diminuta and now again there's no science in this case indicating that this can help anyone any any human with anything um, and, and the fact that it's a, it's not native to people, it has that against it. On the other hand, apparently people can, you know, there, there are studies of people like in India, kids, and they seem to be infected with it without any side effects. At least that's who that, the advocates point to those studies when they say, right. oh, we don't have to worry about it. Yes, I have mean, heard some. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I have heard some extraordinary claims with um with that tapeworm, but um yeah, it's nice to sort of put it in perspective. Well, so the tapeworm, just to to finish up, the guys who were doing that, they're out of the UK, uh, or at least one branch of them, 
of the practitioners is out of the UK, and at least they, they're, they're operating out of a real facility. They're trying to get their regulatory approval. So the importance of regulatory approval, one of the most important things about you know, like FDA oversight is that you quality control. Like they force you to make to prove that every dose that you get is the same as every other dose that you've gotten in yep. the past. And that what you think you're getting is actually what you're getting. You know? So for example with the hookworms, I mean in theory, the larvae are microscopic, right? So you could get a hundred, you could get two. But they're gonna have very different effects and you just basically have to trust your your provider. That you're going to get the amount that they say you're going to get. When things are regulated, that's not the case. You can actually—I mean, you, you're trusting the government to have regulated them to to do what they say what they say they're going to do. Yeah, let's uh, watch this space. So, moving on to the um, fecal microbiota transplantation, that's a, another—I wouldn't say extreme, but in terms of like the, it's almost like an organ transplant in, in terms of the effects. Where do you see the evidence for that, and um, where perhaps is it is it less so strong? Um, your sort of take on FMT? Well, again, it's clearly effective for C. diff for Clostridium difficile. That's where it's strongest. Yes, um, and that's where the rationale for it is probably strongest too, or clearest, I should say, because the, the problem there is you, is a loss of biodiversity of, of microbial diversity in the intestine, uh, and so you're basically reinstating that diversity. You're retransplanting the entire ecosystem. So it, it makes sense that it should work, and it's great that it does work, and it's kind of amazing that it works as well as, as, as with the with the effectiveness that it does, which is like upwards of ninety percent or something. I mean, yes. there's no treatment that that's that's that effective usually. Uh, so the the question is though, can it help in these other more these other disorders like uh, you know the the inflammatory bowel diseases or allergies or autism or um, and. I, I'm waiting to see. I think some studies are starting to emerge, small studies showing that repeated transplants help with, uh, with some of the, with the inflammatory bowel diseases. I think it was ulcerative colitis. I saw a study about them. They're very small studies. Um, and then Thomas Barodi, of course. I mean, he's been, he's been using it effectively in, on an individual. Like, there, there are a number of case studies from, from yes. his clinic dating back like a decade, as I recall. So at an individual level, he says he's been using it. I mean, of course, everything needs to be proven in large, randomized studies. Um, you know, there, there's. Do you know that that study from uh, the Netherlands? Um, I forget the lead author, but they, they were doing it. They, they, theirs was was uh, placebo controlled. No, it was uh, it wasn't placebo controlled. Yeah, it was. They used. So they gave people one group. They gave them their own feces back. That's right, in metabolic syndrome patients. Yeah, and they yeah, saw in the lead a patient. change. Yes. Right? So, like, that is a really nicely designed study that shows that it can have um, systemic effects, that the micro microbes you have have systemic effects and that you can change the, how your sort of your metabolism works by changing your microbes. Of course, they, they eventually lost the benefits over time, but who knows what repeated infusions might do. Or who knows what infusions plus dietary changes might do, you know? Yes, yes, that's what I was curious on. If the um, the obese people got the lean donors and they adopted more of the, the lean phenotype, for want of a better term, but if they continued back perhaps with a poor diet, then it's probably the ecology is more likely to shift back to the, the right. pre-infusion state. 
So it might be a good kickstart in the future, but then it must be coupled with, um, you know, dietary interventions and perhaps something like probiotics. So I might use that as a bit of a transition to maybe more of the, if you want to call them softer or more gentler nudges of the, the microbiome in a sense. Um, so probiotics, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but there is a, a little bit of evidence for things like allergy and autoimmunity. It's certainly not um, completely curative, but where do you see probiotics sort of fitting into the, the picture here? Well, I, I think that whatever evidence there is for the cur- what's currently available, um, use those. That's my, always my advice. But go look at the evidence. <laughs> and that, usually the evidence is, is kind of thin. I mean, it's, it's kind of there and kind of thin. And it's, it's not always uh, consistent across different studies. That's always a problem that I have. Like it'll, it'll, it seems like it works in one study, but in another study it won't work. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's probably a whole new generation of probiotics in development that are going to come out in the next decade or maybe sooner that, are gonna, that, that stem from this idea that we should be taking microbes, uh, native microbes or even communities of microbes as opposed to single microbes. Um, like clusters of microbes that we know work well together. Uh, and yes. they'll come online sometime soon. I think, I mean, they, they'll probably be prescribed, uh, I, I would guess. They won't be uh, over-the-counter stuff. Okay. Day, they will. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm sort yeah. of prognosticating. I don't really know. But yeah. I think they're in the pipeline. And I think that for the current, for currently available probiotics, people should just you know, I mean, they're going to hurt your wallet. They're not going to kill you. They're not going to hurt you. They're going to hurt your wallet, worst case. And you like, you never know what might help. So try it once or, you know, try it for a month. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Sure. I'm pretty intrigued with um, Professor Mimi Tang's work down in Melbourne on uh, uh, LGG and, and peanut allergy. That seems yeah, quite um, yeah. impressive. So, that is, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that is one 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 positive for the, the probiotics, and yeah, there is a little bit of uh, study on research in LGG and eczema and so forth. So they're using one. a lactobacillus, right, or something. Yeah, rhamnosus right. LGG. Yep. So yeah, it's got a bit of evidence on um, for eczema, with, uh, both in maternal use um, for the the mother during pregnancy, for later on um, the children having less incidence of allergies. And there was actually a, a follow up study about seven years later. It's only a small trial, but um, they found that not one child in the um, a treatment group um, went on to develop Asperger's or autism, whereas there was a half a dozen or something cases in the control group. So um, yeah. some really int- intriguing stuff with LGG and um, and allergy and immunity. So yeah, I like those st- those studies need to be replicated. Though I mean, I, I like yeah. that study, and I, and and it's very suggestive, but you also don't know if it's just a fluke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a small small sample yeah. and so forth. It was certainly intriguing in. Um, should prompt us to do more work, but I'm sure funding and things dictate that as well. Yeah. So finally, um, I think one of the, the the drives for you to write your book was um, to explore how to prevent um, these things. As you said, you're at risk. You've got allergies and autoimmunity, and one of your concerns was whether your children um, may develop this um, if they're living in this sort of hygienic world. So that was sort of your your you know drive to uncover this. So. I know it's um, still early days and often it's quite sort of generic um, information or suggestions about eat more fibre and so forth. But, yeah, what can parents do now or pe- people themselves that can increase their diversity and potentially the, you know, the, the, the better, for want of a better term, um, organisms and so forth for yeah. preventive of um, these conditions? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. The only thing you could say with any kind of certainty, and it's not even that much certainty, but at least some 
suggestion in the literature is to eat a diet full of soluble fiber so that those cultivate the good microbes that you already have and give them a substrate to munch on. Um, yes. But, you know, besides that, it's really hard to say because so there's this really suggestive observation of like, you know, should you go work on a farm? That would be like, I mean, first of all, can anyone really do that? Probably not. But maybe yeah. we could, maybe if we knew more, we could work on a farm once a week or, you know, so the, the, we haven't talked about this, but there's this whole literature of people who live on dairy farms having a lower risk of allergic disease, you know, being born on and living on a dairy farm. Um, and so like, that would be great to sort of recommend if it, if it were feasible in some feasible way, but there are, there's like one or two studies suggesting that people who are urban who go to farms only occasionally actually have a higher risk of allergic disease because, yeah. because I mean, there's all sorts of theories as to why, but potentially because you go into this microbially rich environment, your immune system is not used to it and your immune system actually freaks out, you know, and it all starts to overreact. And so it's like, it's like getting dunked in cold water or something like that. Um, so... I would like to say that I, I don't. We don't know enough yet to to say as much. Um, you know, just playing in the dirt, not being so paranoid about things like playing in the dirt. I think that's probably okay. I don't think it's going to help much, honestly, because <laughs> I mean, people say it all the time, and the microbiologists they say it all the time. But if you look closely at the epidemiology, it's the people who live are exposed to uh, to you know the farming stuff, for example. Uh, the people in the same rural areas who were not farmers, who were still in a rural area, presumably exposed to dirt, were not protected. It was only the people exposed to cows that were protected. Yeah, okay. So there's that. Um, day, daycare is another thing that's protected. My kids went to daycare. It wasn't intentional. Um, and you probably yeah, sure. can't send you, but they also get a, a lot of colds at daycare. So I don't know. It's a drawback. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, really, it's just food. It's, that's the only that's the only lever that we have right now, you know. Sure. Probiotics, maybe, but um, you know, I'm just not convinced by the small studies that show they're. I, I'm waiting for a large study to say, yeah, everyone take whatever this is. And yeah. They will, you know, I would love that, but I'm not convinced yet. No, that's great. That yeah, you're you're um tempering your your interest and and yeah not overstating which i think is really important this this space because it can get sort of overblown sometimes some of the the claims and things so uh, so before we uh wrap up perhaps just um tell me and the audience about your book and your blog and, and some of your work um yeah i mean i'm just continuing life as a science writer i write about a lot of things you can go to my website moisesvm.com and, and i always post my new articles there um i'm writing I write for the uh, New York Times pretty regularly these days. Not often about my codes, but occasionally. Um, and there's more stuff. I have a piece coming out on, on animals that use medicine. It's pretty interesting. Hmm, fascinating. Um, in the and um, microbiome, any, any sort of thoughts in the future on more published books on the microbiome or anything? Well, you know, mine, mine came out and there weren't many around, and now there are so many. I don't think there's. <laughs> no, I don't think that there's, there's a need more. more yeah, so. yeah, it's a saturated market, perhaps. <laughs> um, and I should also point out your TEDx talk. I thought that was really, really good. So um, there's a link on your your website to that, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. Great. Well, Moises, it's been a, a thrill for me because it's helped 
um, elucidate some of these uh, ideas and, and put into context, and I think that's certainly needed in this space. So I appreciate your time, and um, perhaps we can uh, touch base in the future when we've got some more information to um, try and sift through and, and create some uh, clinical and practical takeaways. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.